Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarang Gupta and our guest today is Jisupesh Tutu, co-founder and managing partner at 186 Ventures. 186 Ventures is a early stage VC firm investing across fintech, consumer, enterprise and disruptive tech. Prior to co-founding 186 Ventures, Jisupesh was the co-founder and CEO of Fam. a group video software company that was acquired by DraftKings. He then served in product and strategy roles at DraftKings leading up to the IPO and was also the COO for Python Technology. He holds a BSBA from the Boston University Questrom School of Business. Join us as we explore 186 investment philosophy and how they evaluate potential investments. opportunities unlocked by the web3 disruption strategically deploying capital in an uncertain market anticipated evolution of d apps and layer 1 chains and much more hope you enjoy the show i just super good afternoon good afternoon toran how are you thank you for having me of course i'm doing well where are you calling in from today i'm calling in from boston massachusetts and how's the weather up there uh surprisingly uh and in some cases from an environmental standpoint unfortunately it is good uh you know typically february is the coldest month of the year but i think we are hitting 60 degrees today which is highly unusual and um unfortunate in some some ways all right let's start the questions let's so- do it for our listeners who may not know could you start by sharing a bit about your career and how did you start in fintech Sure. So this goes all the way back to my undergrad, I guess, because fintech implies technology and uh, originally uh, my my experience, you know, way back in my undergrad I was studying finance uh, in school. So academically I guess that's my background, but I started to teach myself how to program at a very young age, right around uh the time the App Store launched in uh 08, 09 when I was still an undergrad here in Boston. and then um shortly after my undergrad started building various mobile uh, applications and technologies and uh built my own company for about 5 years uh that being a multi-party video infrastructure uh product and uh sold that to another consumer-based company here in Boston but i guess the to to roll into your question of fintech uh when i started uh well first a lot of my peers were building a lot of interesting um financial technology services right around the same time I was building my company which was not in fintech but then uh once I started to angel invest with my good friend in 2018 right around the same time we you know we 186 ventures was born which is uh, a venture firm that we co-founded together we started to do uh, a bunch of fintech investing so i would say it's a combination of having advised and, and having access to incredible peers that started some of the, the you know great fintech companies com- coupled with our angel investing in fintechs and now obviously it, it's a core pillar of our venture firm here at 186 ventures in our in our themes and so we we continue to double down on it and we think that it's arguably the largest um venture opportunity out there and and it's a technology that is in many ways still in its infancy across multiple applications within financial services 
Uh, and we think it's, it's, it's a great time to be building a financial technology um, for the next several decades, honestly. And you have had a super interesting career, right? You started by building FAM to working at DraftKings till the ipo And now you became an investor. Why make the switch from entrepreneurship to investing? I think a, from a general standpoint, you know, there's many ways or reasons why. I guess you know, specific to my personal background, I guess um, there were a couple of things or a few things that happened. One, um, you know, having built a company, then sold it, then you know, I was in various uh, roles at DraftKings leading up to their IPO to their point. And then even after DraftKings, I joined one of our early angel investments, a company called Pison Technology, as their chief operating officer, and I helped them stand up various divisions within the company and help them grow the team for a couple of years. But going into 2021, I recognized that uh, personally, what I like to refer to as my operational endurance in managing teams or larger teams, it was, it was becoming uh, quite taxing. And I love developing people. Uh, and I knew that if my if I wasn't fully passionate about that problem set, then why am I still you know kind of asking people to to be loyal to me as their manager, right? So I kind of for, for various ways questioned my operational capacity. But I think more importantly, though, uh, my the work that I was doing with angel investing in 186 ventures uh, with my friend Julian was becoming more and more impactful. And I was what we ultimately found, which was the, the inflection point and in why we decided to institutionalize our investment platform and raise our first fund is that although there was and still is an unprecedented amount of capital allocated towards the early stage technology asset class, we found that there, it was completely dislocated to the amount of what we consider to be um, high-quality institutional um, VC know-how to go with that. What I mean by that is a lot of our angel investments, we were writing $25,000, checks. And some of these companies had raised money from VCs and you know, one, two, three million dollar checks from them. And we were finding that a lot of these founders were coming to us for advice and help on, in some cases, very important business matters versus going to their VCs. So that was kind of the aha moment. And it made us, it, was, it is an incredibly motivating factor that's made us realize we have a lot of good work to do for the next generation of founders working on the world's largest problems. And so it's a, it's a responsibility we're very excited about taking on. And we think that we can deliver a lot of value to, prod, um, to founders building products and our LPs alike. Let's dive deeper into 186 Ventures. What's your investment philosophy? Our investment philosophy is that we like to think we are uh, one of the best-in-class early-stage VCs that are maniacally focused on the earliest stages of building a business. So that's you know what's considered pre-seed and seed now. You know, five years ago, only seed, but let's call it before a company gets to one or two million in ARR, right? Um, today, probably two million era, and um, our investment philosophy is being focused on that stage in certain themes where we have key uh, differentiated networks and just know how, whether it be through our prior building experience 
whether it be through our prior investing experience. Uh, and then the most important point, in our opinion, is a relentless focus on relating to founders in ways that is very important to them, um, especially when they're constantly faced with uncertainty at the earliest of stage. So our, so our philosophy is finding companies that have the right founder market fit, chasing a very large market, and who we think have a differentiated enough approach or solution, whether it be through the product, whether it be through the founding team's background or whatever else. And then, of course, at a time, and this is where I think a lot of founders and VCs alike lost touch over the last three years, but at a time when venture capital can actually be useful uh, because ultimately it, it's a tool, right? And I think a lot of times, even from my own operating experience, it's easy to get carried away with you know, raising capital you don't need, but it does fundamentally change your decision-making philosophy. So we think it's very important to find the right company that we can you know, potentially generate outsized returns on, but of course, at a time when the company um, can absorb that capital in a very productive manner. That's super interesting. And a significant part of Vonetix's portfolio is investor in fintech and web-free companies. Talk to us a bit about your analysis of these segments and what do you see as the opportunity spaces within these segments? Sure. So, you know, we think we, in many ways, look at fintech and blockchain technology in a very combined sense in some ways. What I mean by that now is a lot of the financial services that can be disrupted with technology can so happen to benefit from various decentralized approaches to building technology, right? Um, So an example, and first to be clear, we like to distinguish between blockchain technology and the actual underlying digital uh, currency assets. What I mean by that is blockchain technology is effectively designed to improve efficiency in performance and, and reduce execution costs and all sorts of financial services, whether it be trading, processing, or, or custody of whatever securities, right? Cryptocurrency, which is distinct from that, in, in our view, refers to the kind of the, the component of trading or owning or whatever of these speculative tokens, right? So we definitely distinguish between the two. Let's focus on blockchain only, where we think blockchain can, you know, optimize the settlement of certain securities, currencies, and loan transactions. Uh, and, it nece- and that is a fintech by itself, right? So our theme is looking at what financial services in the world um, can be optimized and it can be brought to the next level, and it may or may not benefit from some form of blockchain technology. Now, if we were to talk specifics, cross-border payments, we think we are in the very early stages of making them higher performing, more cost-effective, and and obviously within that, um, a broader form of payments within the workplace, so making it easier um, to be able to transmit payments from business to business or even business to consumers in certain regions. Uh, and then, of course, there's the a whole identity component of it, too, which is still a very long way to go. And what I mean by that is, you know, we there's been a lot of time spent on, for example, Know Your Customer, also known as KYC, 
So that's when you know a financial service, whether it's a financial service that offers trading of cryptocurrencies or trading of equities like E-Trade, it's also it's all the same problem set, which is you have you have to onboard a consumer, you have to be compliant with regulatory bodies, and you also just need to make sure you gather the right information to offer a good enough user and customer experience. But how do you do it in a seamless manner where you know you are obviously capturing fraud, you're remaining compliant, but you're not making the user experience so difficult where you actually lose customers during the onboarding. There's been a lot of, there's been a tremendous amount of effort put on nailing the KYC, the, uh, the consumer side of things, but know your business. So this layer of identity for businesses is relatively untouched, uh, or if it is touched, it's archaic in nature. So we think there's tremendous opportunity there. Uh, and then, of course, there's various uh, components of encryption uh, that can be applied to personally identifiable information, whether it be financial or other other forms of personal information, uh, via zero-knowledge proofs, right? So we, we constantly think of zero-knowledge or ZK technology in the crypto sense, but we're ultimately talking about an application or, or technology that can be used in many settings, not specific to cryptocurrency only, right? And so we, we have our eyes on that, and, and that may very well be a very uh, key component of solving various aspects of the Know Your Customer flow, among other things. Uh, but we're, we're very excited about um, you know, a lot of innovations that are at the nexus of fintech and blockchain technology, or even just you know, within fintech, for example. Um, and and yeah, there's a lot of growth there to be had. Any, in this answer, you briefly touched upon the fact that you have to like be aligned with the regulatory bodies, right? After the FTX uh, issue, we see a lot more regulatory pressure or, or insight into the Web3 space. Do you feel that this might slow down the pace of innovation in the space, or do you think this is better for the long term because it will create potential trust in the system? It is, with the caveat that it's done in a way that doesn't completely restrict companies from being able to offer certain cryptocurrency services in the US, it is unequivocally a healthy motion in the right direction, right? Uh, actually, one of our portfolio companies, Ponto, yeah, they spent one year in, in R&D of making sure they took the absolutely most regulatory first, cautious approach to building what they consider their next generation financial service of being able to seamlessly offer custody and KYC and other forms of compliance capabilities of financial services to their customers, right? So what, what this company does, for example, is they allow, they abstract away the difficulties with processing payment and custody, for example, of all sorts of different payment scenarios, such as fiat to digital currency or vice versa. And not and beyond cryptocurrency, it could also be with mobile money within telecommunication protocols. Now, they did things the right way. And they are actually one of, at this point, I think, if you look at the recent SEC proposal to modify the custody rule that specifically impacts digital assets and cryptocurrencies, I think Ponto is one of five or six companies that are now left standing with being able to custody crypto in a compliant manner or in process payments of it, of crypto. And, and so I think that, yes, there are a lot of casualties, for lack of a better word, 
of companies who thought they were compliant or they knew they weren't compliant, but they thought, hey, it's gray area, let's go for it. And yes, they're, they're being, in, in some cases, rightfully punished. Unfortunately, there are some cases where companies are not rightfully punished, but I think that's just the collateral damage of any fledgling space. And this, hopefully, this regulatory clarity will settle in and will make it easier for companies doing the right thing to move faster. So obviously, we're biased because one of our companies have done things the right way. But I I don't think anyone could possibly argue with that, uh, in my honest opinion. And you focus on early stage ventures, early stage founders. There is not a lot of financial data to back the idea or back the firm. What or how do you gauge the technical and operational expertise of the founding team? And do you have any KPIs that you really rely on to give you an indication of the growth potential? Sure. So it certainly depends on the industry they're tackling. But if we were to first focus on the founding team members, um, it really de- it starts with assessing what we consider to be their prospective founder market fit. Now, there are many inexperienced or first-time founders that don't really have much prior operating experience, which is fine. But we still look for indicators, both qualitative and quantitative, to, to, to see why is this founder going to be differentiated and competent enough to win this particular market. And that's everything from, let's say, for, the, for, for founders that don't have as much experience, just under, trying to understand as best as possible how well do they understand the space, right? If they're, for example, if there are competitors that we know of that the founders not know of, that is an easy way, a big red flag and an easy way to really just, you know, kind of discount their ability or disqualify their position to be a viable investment candidate in our eyes, right? We, we should not be the subject matter experts in a particular product space. We should just know enough to know when we're talking to the best expert, right? So there's things like that. And then, of course, founders that do have operating experience, we look for key ingredients and even lesser experienced ones to, to suggest whether they have what it takes to recruit all-star talent, right? Because getting from... There's many companies that get to one or two million in revenue, which is very difficult to do, but there's still many that get there. And for our criteria, we're investing in... 50 to 100x outcomes, hopefully. Meaning, you know, it's going to, gen- they're going to have to generate tens of millions at a minimum to hundreds of millions of dollars and even billions of dollars in revenue one day for us to really hit our uh, kind of success criteria from an investment standpoint. So, therefore, the team matters a lot more than the founders, oftentimes. So, you need to be able to really understand what is the probability that these founders or this founder will be able to recruit people much better than them that will allow them to to build out the best possible product service and and whatever else. Um, So that's kind of some of the things that we think about specific to founders themselves. Uh, and, And then I guess, you know, in terms of KPIs and for the product and company itself, I mean, beyond the founders, we obviously like to look at um, what stage are they at and, and within the seed stage and within what industry. So for example, you know, if you're building a consumer fintech company today um, where cost of capital is through the roof, 
and your cost of acquisition is also through the roof. Um, we are going to want to see you know some quantifiers around organic growth because even if you you have a thesis that you truly believe that your consumer financial service is going to be helpful to whatever XYZ demographic, the reality is if you're relying on paid acquisition from the start, you just won't be able to compete, uh, in my opinion. So in that case, we look for more mature products with organic um, coefficients around growth, user growth, that is. Uh, and although we don't particularly care about profitability as much as our later stage counterparts do um, when we're looking at companies this early on, we certainly like to look at how are the founders, regardless of whether they're a B2C or B2B play, how are they thinking about the unit economics and how those will evolve? Because I think what happened, and this is actually not specific to fintech only. This is you know this this range to really any any company that was labeling themselves as a technology company. But over the last two or three years, when capital was in abundance, and this, at least here in the U.S. and arguably throughout the world, you had trillions of dollars printed and, and put into the financial system. Plus, you had arguably the longest rally of public equities and private companies over the last 12 years where distributions were everywhere, right? So that created a storm where people, investors, that is, and in some cases, even founders, turned a blind eye to margins. And that's where a lot of multiple dislocation happened, where you have companies with 20, 30% margins getting SaaS multiples uh, as if they have 80% margins. I mean, it's easy to we kind of overlook that when there's an investor that's going to continue to pay a higher price. But when the musical chairs stop, well, and distributions stop, well, it's a big problem, right? So you'll, you're finding that, you know, margins matter. again, And they should have always mattered. Right. And, and it's not to say that companies with low margins can't achieve venture returns. It's that they need to be realistic with their capitalization trajectory. Right. Uh, and, and, and anyways, so that's another indicator we look forward to, um, among other things. Continuing on that front, the last six months have not been kind to fintech or crypto in general. Right. Do you, as an early stage investor, have changed your outlook on how long your portfolio companies will need? To raise a series A or more? And also along with that, how do you plan on deploying your dry powder this year? Good question there. One thing I will point out though, and the media is not kind to it. Now, Ethereum's up 40% on the year. Bitcoin's up 50% on the year. So to be very clear, cryptocurrency, if you're looking at the highly speculative stuff that has not proven much value, it might be a tough year. But if you look at a lot of um, blockchain-related companies and projects that are actually producing value, their revenue has been growing, to be very clear. So it is a tough year, I think, for all asset classes, fintechs, cryptocurrencies. But I think that there's still a lot of growing companies. But to going back to um, it's been a tough year, like how do we think about it? I mean, going back to the fundamentals, I think for companies, fintechs, uh, and, and pretty much any company at all, whether they're blockchain related or not, if they are responsible and realistic in their capitalization trajectory, they'll be fine. If they weren't, they will not be fine. And, and that's kind of the way it should be in an up market, in a down market, in a sideways market. 
So the way we look at it is if the company has a lot of baggage and you know we find it, remember, we're at the seed stage, right? So at the seed stage, recapitalizations and down rounds are uncommon. And there's very little data to suggest at the seed stage that companies will recover from recapitalizations. So we tend to not, not that we, we don't look at companies that are, you know, raising extensions on, on terms that are much worse than what they previously raised on. We just know that it's sometimes difficult to come back from that. And sometimes we just like to look at fresh companies um, that are coming out of the gates. So there's that component of it. And then your, your other question was related to dry powder, I believe. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, like, how do you plan on managing and deploying dry powder this year? Oh, sure. Well, we're very active. That's for sure. Um, we think now and for the next few years in particular are going to be one of the best times to, to partner with incredible early stage founders in certain industries, maybe most importantly, fintech, right, among others. And um, so we are, we're sticking to our traditional 36-month deployment cycle, but we just so happen to be in a position where we have more dry powder than we've deployed on a, on a ratio standpoint. And we're certainly, we were always patient, which is why you know, we didn't get caught up as much as some others in 2021 and early 2022. Uh, but I would say that we are, we're definitely understanding that a value-added VC like 186 that uh, you know, has the background and skill set and network access we do, how valuable we can be to an early-stage startup. So we're certainly being more patient as it relates to value capture. Now, that doesn't mean that we're trying to undervalue companies. It just means that we know we bring a certain value to the marketplace. So we can be a bit pickier in this type of market in, um, in terms of the, the profile of company and, and pricing that we can enter in at. And then to be very clear, and I always like to give this caveat, investors don't build businesses. They actually do very little in the grand scheme of things uh, as it relates to the trajectory of a company and so on. Now, there are times where we can be particularly impactful at certain key inflection points along the company life cycle. And that's why you know we we get into the deals we get into, but on the other hand, um, we need to be cognizant that investors don't run the game; founders do. So there's that component of it where we'll always be beholden to founders that are building interesting businesses. And switching over a bit to like the macro environment or the fintech industry overall, there has been a lot of conversation about you know layer one layer one chains and the apps in the last one or two years. So my question is. As this market evolves, do you see a winner-takes-all situation or do you see more of an oligopolistic situation where you have four or five dominant players? So one would it should be the latter, right? It should be the latter. Now, evidence suggests that it's the former. And so I think that it's too early to tell. And obviously, it depends on what time horizon we're talking. We're saying within the next five years... It's very arguable that it is actually one party takes all or very few parties take all. If we're talking over a 30 to 50 year time horizon, there should be multiple L1s and, and, and scaling solutions that uh, play an important part. Now, I think in terms of DApps or decentralized apps, 
you know, a lot of a lot of them won't survive, uh, and even a lot of these L ones won't survive because, and it's you can compare it to the '90s where, you know, most of the websites and infrastructure tools and so on that that they were great experiments, uh, and they they certainly yielded some at least R and D value, um, but they they did not build enduring businesses. So I. I think it's it's going to be interesting to see which ecosystems survive. Um, there's a couple that are obviously well capitalized and have plenty of usage. I don't think those ones are going to have issues, but there were way too many L1s and L2s that launched over the last three years that you know might have a lot of money in their bank account today. But I struggle to see how there's going to be enough enterprise demand and enterprise usage um, set aside consumer demand and consumer usage that make full use, productive use of um, a lot of the infrastructure that has been built to date. So um, that's my personal opinion. But I think that in the short term, it's going to be one or two that accrue most value. There's no evidence to suggest otherwise, in my opinion. And are there any segments within fintech that you're bearish on? This is funny. So as I just talked about, you know, being so excited about Moni Africa um, with their first use case being lending, I always say lending is a use case that I'm bearish on. Um, particular, I mean, honestly, anywhere in the world. Just be, and that is just by nature of just the economics. It is just interest rates are high right now. And it is very expensive to borrow money. So if you're an upstart, so I think we're talking specific to upstarts, right? If you're talking about scaled use cases, it, now is a great time to have money to lend. <laughs> so you know, you'll make a killing. But for startups, which is kind of the, the construct at which we deploy into early stage startups, very difficult to get a lending operation off the ground right now because of how expensive it is. And in some ways, how uncertain interest rates are. You know, I, yes, things are starting to to pan out in some ways, and the Fed is slowing down on the rate at which they're increasing rates. But you never know; we're not out of the woods yet. And especially in emerging markets, we you know it's still um, very choppy waters. So we're very wary of lending models. On the other hand, companies we invest in, I mean. You have to think about what the world needs and looks like in 2028. That's the hardest part about seed investing is you're not investing for you know a company to you know blow it out of the gates over the next two years. You're 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 investing in them to be the leader in five to ten years. So you know that directly contradicts what I just said is you know against lending, but you still need to consider. Will a company have the resourcing and momentum it needs to make it to the next phase? of financing. And it's hard to do that, I think, in lending right now. And that's why you're seeing a lot of the buy now, pay laters and others um, going through the challenges that they're going through. For my last second, what I'd like to do is introduce you more as a person to our listeners. And I have a couple of rapid fire questions lined up for that. What is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? So Italian is my first language and it's the only language that I speak with most of my family. Uh, and it catches people off guard because for whatever reasons, I do not have an Italian accent when I speak English. Um, so, you know, I guess that's a fun fact. Being an entrepreneur or being an investor, 
what have you enjoyed more? Boy, well, being an entrepreneur. I think if you think about it, remember, investing is only part of my day. You know, we are, you know, we are also entrepreneurs in building our own venture firm, right? So if you think about it, there's two hats that my, my co-founder Julian and I have to wear, and even you know, to an extent, our third team member Sophie. Where on one hand, yes, you know, we have the investor hat on, but on the other hand, we're we're also entrepreneurs, and that's the funner part is is thinking about how can we not completely redefine, but graduate our ability to service early stage founders to service the next generation of limited partners that want access to early stage tech. And that part's a lot of fun because it's what makes us, you know, better investors ultimately. What do you think is the key to success for a startup to go from zero to one? There's many keys to success, uh, but I would say the founder being just absolutely obsessed with the problem set because I very few companies, if any, uh, that have become category leading businesses have, you know, went to market with only one approach or one product. It's constantly, it's a zigzag, right? It's a lot of ups, a lot of downs. And the only constant throughout those ups and downs typically is the founder, founder's ability in the early stage, you know, the founding team's ability, I should say also, of, of understanding what the market needs at any given point. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's virtually impossible to build a category leading company without being the best at that. If you could go back in time, let's say 10 or 15 years, what advice would you give your younger self? That is a good question. I, I, I would say I certainly put myself, myself in uncomfortable positions pretty early on, um, but I would have done it even earlier. So I think instead of waiting until I was however old I was, 20 years old to start a business, I would have done it at 15. That's probably the advice I would give myself. Not because I, you know, I think things worked out, um, you know, all things considered for me, but I think it's about the experience, right? It's not about just starting a company. It's the experience that comes with that. I just would have tried to do that sooner just to get that experience under my belt. And do you think you would have had the operational and technical like understanding to do that successfully? Probably not, but I would have understood and recognized what I need to improve on faster. And that's, that's the point. I, I probably would not have been successful. And it's, you know, one can argue it's defied the odds as much as I've done already um, from my own kind of, at least from an entrepreneurial experience. And um, certainly, though, you learn a lot about yourself when you fail. So I think that it's okay to enter scenarios of failure as long as you have the right mindset and foundation to be able to capitalize on that. On that note, I'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Tarang. Really appreciate your time. And and this was a blast. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Work in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Work in Fintech. 
there you will find interviews articles videos and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry as always special thanks to our editor rafael osteria signing off until next time i am your host tarang gupta Thank you.